Hello, everyone, and welcome to Silver Streams, a weekly podcast from the AFI Silver Theater and Cultural Center's programming team. I'm Todd Hitchcock, AFI Silver's Director of Programming. I'm Abby Algar, Associate Film Programmer. And I am Ben Delgado, the Assistant Film Programmer. Today, we're going to discuss the latest offerings in AFI Silver's virtual screening room, as well as recommending some additional titles you may stream at home. And new this week, we have Capital in the 21st Century, documentary based on the acclaimed 2013 book by rock star French economist Thomas Piketty, Dear Skin, a killer dark comedy from French director Quentin Dupieux, Beyond the Visible, Hilma af Klint, a new documentary about the recently rediscovered Swedish artist of the title, The Infiltrators, um, an inventive docufiction that goes undercover in a Florida ICE detention center, and Vitalina Varela, the latest from Portuguese filmmaker Pedro Costa. As with our previous episodes of the podcast, we're going to start off by previewing the films that are debuting this week in AFI Silver's virtual screening room. Briefly recap the films that are still available on a continuing basis for streaming options to watch at home. And then we're going to close out with some additional recommendations for films that you may choose to view at home, that section being our programmer's picks. This is episode five of Silver Streams. We began this podcast at the end of March as a way of keeping the AFI Silver program alive and going and keeping the conversation with you, our audience, alive and going. And a sincere thank you to everyone who has listened so far, um, especially to those of you who have tuned in to more than one of the episodes. That includes not only those of you who live in the Silver Spring, Maryland area or the wider Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, but also to all of those who have tuned in from abroad. We are now up to 10 different countries where we've had listeners tuned in from, which is amazing. So welcome one and all. You can find the podcast each Friday posted on our website at afi.com slash silver in our Friday e-blast and also across our social media channels. And we're on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most of the places you would normally find your podcasts. And if you don't see us in those places where you normally find your podcasts, uh, navigate over to our website, anchor.fm slash silver dash streams. That's the official website of the podcast. And you can listen straight from the website or you can copy the RSS feed and drop it into your podcast app of choice. And you can find everything we are currently offering for viewing on our website at afi.com slash silver. And when you're on our website, please be sure to sign up for our email to keep up with our latest announcements. You'll also find information there on how to make a donation if you'd like to support AFI Silver during our temporary closure. We currently have a dollar-for-dollar dollar matching campaign going, and your help this month is especially appreciated. If you have any feedback or questions, you can email us at silverinfo at afi.com. All right, so we have five films which will be debuting this week in AFI Silver's virtual screening room. And first up is the documentary Capital in the 21st Century. If that title sounds familiar to you, it should. It is the same as the title of a book which came out in 2013, uh, a book which was extremely well received. It's by 
the French economist Thomas Piketty. And I'm going to guess that not too many 700-page economic books get translated into other languages, let alone sell millions of copies. But this one did. It was a very well-reviewed, very well-received, thought-provoking treatise on the history, not only looking ahead to the 21st century uh, issues with capital, realities of capital, but a look back to the history of capital over the preceding centuries of the modern era. And Piketty really had a gift for synthesizing uh, history and looking at it with this economic lens into a way that tracked for both the uh, specialist in, in economics and the general reader. And in looking at this data, he also brought in examples from literature and the arts and popular culture. And it made for, well, something that was a lot more fun to read, I imagine, than Karl Marx's Das Kapital. Two books that are often in, unavoidably compared together in the discussion of, of his book, which popped up on various op-eds over the ensuing years. And Piketty's follow-up, Capital and Ideology, was just published this year. Turning a nonfiction book into a nonfiction film documentary is actually something that seems to be a little bit in vogue right now. Um, thinking back to 2006 with Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth, not a book in its original form, famously a slideshow, but it kind of maybe paved the way for how well this could work for the right kind of thing. Uh, another economics book, successful economics book from 2005, Freakonomics, was itself turned into a documentary in 2010. And then there are two canonical works from film studies that have recently been turned into really good uh, documentaries. I'm thinking of Hitchcock Truffaut, which Kent Jones turned into a wonderful documentary. Of course, Hitchcock Truffaut, the iconic set of interviews conducted by Francois Truffaut with his idol, Alfred Hitchcock. And from Caligari to Hitler, uh, Siegfried Krakauer's uh, canonical and on many, many college syllabuses account of German film from the first half of the 20th century. Looking ahead, Michelle Obama's blockbuster memoir, Becoming, is also getting the documentary treatment and will be premiering on Netflix in May. But back to Piketty. His early work before the big book in 2013 looked closely at U.S. income inequality. And this data was out there for anyone to look at, but he really pioneered the uh, close examination of where the wealth was concentrated. All of our references to the 1% that have uh, animated so many conversations and again, op-ed pieces over the last decade, Piketty was someone whose research really informed that. And not only the 1%, but even the 1% of the 1%. So the book looked more closely, not only at income inequality, but really wealth inequality, and specifically capital that's just not circulating, capital wealth that is held by those 1% part of the population. And he sees what Piketty sees are really alarming similarities to the world and the uh, concentrations of wealth and inequality rates in the time leading up to World War I. And he also finds illustrative examples in the time around the French Revolution, both in the immediate lead up and unfortunately into what he describes as the missed opportunity and the botched chance of the, the time uh, following that, which of course 
was followed by a period of tyranny. The documentary opens with Piketty relating what was for him a formative experience of the Berlin Wall coming down and the fall of communism. He was then an 18-year-old. And he was aware at the time that this was being portrayed as a, as a triumph for capitalism over communism. But what ensued in the 90s, and which Piketty's really good at, at describing, is how sort of the wrong lessons were learned from that, including um, a sort of a form of hyper-capitalism. And because Piketty is able to take the long view on capital to explain this moment and compare it to previous versions of that kind of concentrated wealth and, and high inequality rates in history, he's able to make a compelling argument that things are bad and, and getting worse, and that this is bad for the capitalist system overall, and always has been, not just in the US, but also Western Europe and, and countries with established welfare states, and other examples around the world as well, Japan and Korea, for example. Uh, in addition to Piketty's concerns about the 1% concentration of wealth and what he sees as a disastrous situation with it being inherited and not recirculating back into the system, uh, the real estate market as a place to park assets and uh, offshoring with companies registering in places that they're not really conducting their business also come in for, for Piketty's criticism. Those of you who follow such things regularly in the news may not be surprised to, to hear that a global wealth tax is a big part of what he recommends as, as a way to address this. So many of us are never going to read the 700-page book. The documentary is your friend in this case, is giving a, a really uh, concise and actually kind of fun summary of what's in the book. In addition to Piketty, we hear from uh, historians like Francis Fukuyama, uh, the Nobel Prize-winning economist Joseph Stiglitz, a number of terrific academics, including uh, Kate Williams from University of Reading and Suresh Naidu from Columbia, and Jillian Tett and Rana Faruhar from the Financial Times are also prominently featured. And then one more aspect of the documentary that I really enjoyed, um, it's got this great visual sense with these uh, animated bridging sequences that are uh, very uh, Gilliam-esque uh, in, in the tradition of his sort of cutout animation from Monty Python. And there's also a number of cheeky pop music cues, uh, including the opening sequence set to Lord's Royals, which is fantastic, uh, as well as a number of um, movie, movie clips throughout the course of, of the film as it's talking about various economic events. Ones that come to mind, A Tale of Two Cities from 1935, John Ford's The Grapes of Wrath from 1940, the Gordon Gecko speech from Oliver Stone's Wall Street, uh, among others. So maybe what sounds like uh, a dense, not very fun topic, certainly an important one, um, consider checking out the documentary version of Capitals in the 21st Century as a way to engage on this incredibly important topic. Wow, it sounds like it packs in a lot. and. Uh uses, uh, as you just mentioned, some pretty uh, different varying things to make it interesting for everyone and informative at the same time. But it's like, really sounds like it's a lot of fact-based um, presenting things as opposed to kind of getting into a deeper criticism of the whole system. Is he critical of capitalism? Does the film kind of take on these 
questions or is it more just showing you what this is and has been? I would say he, he takes it as face value as a, a well-established system. And um, I don't think he uh, has any illusions that we're going to replace it with a completely different system um, or that there's something to recommend for another system. But in observing how it operates and the way his observations are informed by the history of how it has operated over time um, and, and when it's been operating better, when it's been operating worse, um, I think he understands what's going on with our, our present moment as, as compared to others. And he's you know, able to offer a really informed prescription about um, some things that we maybe ought to be doing uh, right now to improve the system, the capital system for everybody, um, all, you know, throughout the system, all, all wealth levels. And I mean, clearly this film is exploring some very complex ideas and using a very accessible and entertaining way to do that. And this is the type of documentary that like in the normal real world, we'd probably be organizing a Q&A or a panel discussion or something like that to kind of expand further on, on what's discussed in the film. I was wondering, Todd, do you know in the virtual world, might there be something like that available? Abby, yes, there might. Just to go back to something I said a moment ago, it's no substitution for reading the book. I, I know that, but I also know not everybody has time to read everything. So sometimes the shortcut is the, is the way to go. But there's so much more that you, you want to discuss after you've watched the documentary and, and want to know about. So yes, it's the perfect kind of film to follow up with a conversation. And good news, there is one. So the film will debut on AFI Silver's screening room service starting Friday, May, May 1. And then on Sunday, May 3rd, at 3 p.m. Eastern time, there's going to be a virtual roundtable. And this is featuring Piketty in conversation with Jillian Tett from the Financial Times, also Ian Bremer, who's the founder of the Eurasia Group and G-Zero Media. And it's going to be moderated by Chris Lehman, the editor of The New Republic. So I think that's going to be uh, a, a fantastic continuation of, of what uh, everyone's going to hear about in the documentary. And you do need to register in advance for the conversation. And you can see how to do that if you click through from our website to the film's uh, streaming page. Uh, the film is coming to us from our friends at Kino Lorber. So the AFI Silver virtual marquee page featuring the film that you access from uh, AFI.com slash silver. You'll see how to register there. Well, that is great news. I didn't know about that. Well, now you do. And so do our listeners. So next up available from the Silver's virtual screening room is the French film Deerskin. And Abby is going to tell us about that one. I am. So Deerskin is from Greenwich Entertainment and it's debuting in our screening room on May 1st. Yeah, so this is another alum of the AFI European Union Film Showcase. And Deerskin is the latest film from French director Quentin Dupieux who is probably most famous for his absurdist horror film, Rubber, which, yes, is about a killer tire on the loose in the Californian desert. And I love it. Um, now, Deerskin actually makes the premise of Rubber seem relatively tame and barely absurd at all, because here, Depew is telling the story of a man who becomes so obsessed with his new Deerskin jacket that he decides it should be the only jacket in the world and he embarks on a mission 
to eliminate all other outerwear from the universe. So yes, this is a dark comedy. And it's also a not so veiled jab at toxic masculinity, unchecked materialism, and maybe even the hubris of filmmaking itself. And I'll also mention the middle-aged man with a seductive jacket named Georges is played by Oscar-winning French heartthrob Jean Dujardin, who you probably know from the artist for which he won the Academy Award. Now, how does this all happen? Because the plot of this film is crazy. Well, Georges is newly separated from his wife and he decides he needs a new lease on life and maybe a new sense of style. Um, he sees an ad for this stylish vintage deerskin jacket and he sets off to purchase it, which he does for 8,000 euros, where the jacket's previous owner also throws in an old camcorder, which Georges also becomes quite fascinated with. Now, let me just tell you a bit about the jacket, because that's important. Um, it's kind of this fringed, suede, 60s, hippie-esque type of a number. A little bit like the jacket that Dennis Hopper wears in Easy Rider. So if you can picture that jacket on like a slightly portly Jean Dujardin with the beginnings of a dude beard, you'll get the general idea of what he's going for there. But regardless, this jacket, this very stylish jacket, imbues George with this very new sense of absolutely unshakable confidence. And, um, you know, he's like, I'm just going to live a new life now. That's it. I'm, I'm ready. So he holds up in a small town in a motel and he gradually becomes obsessed with the idea of removing all other jackets from the world. Yes, this is partly because the jacket starts talking to him and eggs him on. And he also plans to document this process with his newfound toy, the camcorder. So one night at the local bar, he meets bartender and aspiring filmmaker, Denise, played by Adele Hanel from Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which I talked about a few weeks ago. And when Denise notices his camcorder, Georges convinces her he's a director in town making a film and his producers are stuck in Siberia, I think. And he recruits her as an editor and producer funder. And so suddenly George has this accomplice for his strangely bizarre jacket genocide mission. Um, and at first he attempts to get other jacket wearers to turn over the goods and pledge to the camera. I'll never, I'll swear to never wear another jacket as long as I live. But you know, that doesn't really work out. And he has to go to more extreme measures. And yeah, he launches into a murderous rampage in order to fill, fulfill the jacket's will while recording all the grisly details and then handing over the footage to Denise to edit. Um, Denise is pretty impressed by the realism and, uh, you know, she's, uh, she's into the jacket herself and things slowly spiral out of control from there. So uh, if you're looking for an absurdist genre-fused take on the idea of a midlife crisis, uh, maybe your Gothlanthemos by way of Dario Argento. If you appreciate the film's killer tagline, killer style, amazing. And if you like the idea of a talking disc and jacket inspired by Easy Rider, then I think you are all set with this film. I, as you can tell, really enjoyed it. Abby, wow. Um, on the one hand, this movie sounds really frightening. Um, on the other hand, uh, just to make sure everyone listening understands, it is a comedy. And it's truly a funny comedy. As we're unfortunately, yeah, uh, observing these not particularly 
good at what they do, serial killers do what they do. Um, Dujardin, uh, some of our listeners may recall not only, of course, in the, in the artist for which he was uh, an Oscar winner, but the, the really excellent OSS uh, spy spoof movies. Oh yeah, he's great. He's a, he's a comedic genius actually in those. And, and here he, he does it again. He's really, really funny in this. And then his co-star Adele Hanel, um, pretty much this is as different uh, a movie and a role for her as her other a big title from this past year, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. She, it's an interesting character in this, in this film. And she's got some, some funny bits as well, but What's it like with her sort of, you know, signing up to make uh, make a film with this with George, and then maybe discovering that the film is something different than she thought what it was when she signed up? I mean, she's she's not the innocent one here either. She's uh, she she gets involved. <laughs> and, uh, she's not sitting on the sidelines, um, but it's a great character. Very deadpan humor. Um, when she's trying to convince Jean Dujardin's character to, to hire her, she tells him that she, um, as practice, once edited Pulp Fiction into the right order, and it sucked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. She cracked the code. She did. So, yeah, no, she's, she's really good. She's really good, really funny. And uh, the pair of them together make, as you mentioned, kind of bumbling Team. All right. So if you're looking for something different, quirky, uh, very midnight oriented, consider Deerskin from Francis Quentin Depew. And that's coming to us from our friends at Greenwich Entertainment. Uh, next up, back to the documentary side of things. Uh, ben is going to tell us about our, our next film that's uh, new this week. Yeah. So up next, we have Beyond the Visible, Hilma of Clint from our friends at Zeitgeist and Kino Lorber. It is now available in our virtual screening room and has been since April 29th. It's from director Halina Dierschka. Uh, the documentary follows the artist Hilma of Clint, the Swedish artist who until very recently uh, was fairly unknown. Um, she's a pioneering artist who never got her due in her in her day. And since then, since being rediscovered, has really kind of forced the, the narrative to change and the narrative in art history, which is extremely patriarchal and not a lot of room for women. And even to this day, it continues to be, um, was shaken up with uh, the discovery of her new work. So she was uh, an artist who was born in 1862. She started doing her work in 1886 and uh, lived to her 80s and died in 1944. Um, but in the period of time uh, leading up to her most famous landmark work now, uh, in 1906, she was working on less abstract works. Um, but what is really of note is that she was the first to do abstract art. Um, Vasily Kandinsky is often credited with being the, the founder of abstract art. And even in the, the film, there's a letter citing his, um, his personal proclamation of find, founding a new art. Um, the, the painting in question is from 1913. And uh, Helmoff Clint had already been doing an abstract work the first of which was in 1906. So nearly a decade earlier, she had already 
been doing this work and was actually rejected by her peers, her male peers for that work. They were just kind of confused and questioned why she was even doing the work she was doing. Um, the work that she did and a lot of the work she did subsequently was uh, inspired by spiritualism, naturalism, the merging of the sciences and religion together and the specific uh, beginning of abstract art was the series of the paintings for the temple. Um, she was a very prolific artist throughout her life and continued to work in abstract art um, and just varied her styles greatly. Um, exhibited fairly limited in her life. Her exhibition was all pre-abstract, all of her more of her portraits and things like that. She um, kind of felt rebuffed, obviously, by the uh, the people who didn't like her work or told her that why was she doing it so much so that um, upon her death uh, she had in her will that she wanted to keep all of her work secret for at least 20 years after her death and interestingly all that work was kept together and left to her nephew Eric Hofklint who features in the film as one of the interviewees um, among a bevy of different experts, uh, curators, gallerists, um, and even some scientists who talk about her work. There's also a voiceover throughout um, where you have someone who's reading her letters and diary entries and things and just fleshing out her life. So it's really a good portrait of this forgotten artist who changed art history and founded abstract art. But it's also an indictment of the current world, art world, and historical art world that really has not been a place for female artists. So Ben, this uh, documentary about an artist um, is making me think of, you know, other examples of, of these kind of art docs. Uh, of course, there are the various, several documentaries about David Hockney. Uh, of course, a very famous artist. Um, this one seems to be more in the category of these kind of rediscovery, uh, or you haven't heard of this artist before documentaries. I'm thinking of Jessica Yu's uh, excellent 2004 doc in the realms of the unreal about the outsider artist from Chicago, Henry Darger, uh, or more recently, uh, Finding Vivian Mayer about the uh, really gifted New York City uh, street photographer who you know, kept her work secret. Um, how does how does this film and its approach uh, to to its subject compare to some of those? I think it's a that's a pretty apt comparison um, in that it's a, a new discovery uh, of an artist who until very recently had little to no public recognition and a pretty comprehensive look at their work. So that's um, yeah, I think a, a very apt comparison. And of course, sadly, unlike uh, Darger and, and Mayer, uh, who who hid, who intentionally hid their works, um, that wasn't the case with with Hilmoff Clint. Uh, she she exhibited. Um, she wanted to, to to be recognized as as the painter that she was, um, but uh, had had a struggle with that, and uh, especially with her uh, boundary breaking work. Yeah, that that was one of the difficulties. Um, given the time, she was. And the documentary mentions she was one of probably the second generation of women who was even allowed to go to art school. So it was definitely not the time where she could shine, so to speak. 
And when I first heard about this documentary, I felt kind of bad because I studied history of art and I had not heard of this lady. Um, but just want to let you know, if that's the case for anyone out there, don't be intimidated because you will hear one of the art historians in the film, you know, say, yeah, she's, I've dedicated my life to, to the study of the history of art. And I'd never heard of Hilma F. Clint. Um, and, you know, I don't think anyone really had before the Guggenheim mounted a retrospective in 2018, which is, which is kind of crazy. This also reminds me of a recent documentary about female film pioneer Alice Guy Blaché uh, by Pamela Green, which we showed at The Silver not, not that long ago. Um, yeah, I think rewriting the history of the history of the history of art and the history of the history of film is, uh, is something that these type of documentaries can do. Absolutely. So that's Beyond the Visible, Hilma of Clint, and that's coming to us from our friends at Zeitgeist Films and Kino Lorber. Okay, so next up, sticking with the documentary section of our new offerings, is The Infiltrators, and Abby is going to tell us about that one. Yep, so The Infiltrators is coming to us from Oscilloscope Laboratories. Um, this film debuted at Sundance in 2019, and it won two awards there, the Audience Award and the Innovator Award in the next section of the festival. And we were lucky enough to screen it in last year's AFI Latin American Film Festival. So The Infiltrators is this really powerful hybrid kind of documentary thriller. It's directed by a husband and wife team, Christina Ibarra, whose previous film was the documentary Las Matas, and Alex Rivera, whose 2008 sci-fi dystopian film Sleep Dealer was featured in the AFI Latin American Film Festival that year. So the film tells this incredible true story of two young activists, Marco and Viri, both undocumented and both members of a grassroots organization called the National Immigrant Youth Alliance, who basically embark on a reverse prison break and get intentionally detained inside a for-profit immigration detention center in Florida. Um, they're doing this as an act of protest. They're also doing this in order to learn more about the internal workings of this, what essentially is a, a jail, um, and also to assist with one particular case after one of the detainee's sons reaches out to them for help. And I think what makes this film so powerful, besides obviously the topicality of the, of the subject matter and the importance of it, is the way in which the filmmakers approach it. And they really successfully fuse a variety of ways of telling this story um, and a variety of ways of um, showing the material. So they use you know, regular two-camera interviews with the actual people involved, some fly-in-the-wall footage, some archival audio segments, and they mix that in with dramatic scripted reenactments using actors to, uh, to recreate the parts inside the detention facility itself. And, you know, some, I'm often a little bit dubious about reenactments in documentaries. I know some people are. Um, but it really, really works in this case. Um, and I think this way of presenting the story, it creates this really kind of vital, urgent sense. Um, it's almost like a heist thriller, um, except here the heist is completely legit and uh, 
it's like disseminating a phone number that people detained inside can use to call for legal advice and smuggling in legal documents that need to be signed, that kind of thing. Um, and this mix of techniques is, I think, intentionally disorienti disorienting. Um, and it kind of underlines how disorienting this whole system is for the people who are trapped in it. Um, you know, these activists have to work around some crazy stuff to try and impede some of these imminent deportations. And so it's, this is, this is a really, really unique film. It's like a gripping high stakes heist undercover mission type film, but it's also a really important documentary and a really important portrait of a really inspirational group of young people who really risked a lot to fight for, for their communities. So Abby, as you described, the, the people who uh, infiltrate the, the ICE detention center, who intentionally get themselves detained, they, they're dreamers. Their uh, citizenship status in the U.S. Is, is not a settled matter. So they're doing this at great risk to themselves. These events took place in, I think it was 2012. It's a tricky question, but are you able to tell us what has happened since? Ooh, Todd. I don't want to spoil the film because as I mentioned, part of watching this film, I think is to experience it almost like a thriller, um, like you would a fiction film, follow along, you know, follow along with this journey as it happens and unfolds. But, you know, I, I will share that one of the, one of the activists, um, after being released and he was released in 2012, um, he then went on to self deport to Mexico and then seek re-entry into the U.S. as kind of an act of protest, which he, which he did along with a, a group of other dreamers as well. And um, he is now back in the U.S. and he is he is in the system and he's requesting asylum as a human rights advocate. So, um, you know, it's an ongoing developing situation. I wonder if we'll get a documentary about that one, too. I hope so. Yeah, I mean, what an important film. I'm, I'm really glad we got to bring this one back from, from Laugh, and if you didn't see it there, you get another chance now. Okay, so that's The Infiltrators from Oscilloscope Laboratories. Uh, next up, the fifth and final film that is debuting this week in AFI Silver's virtual screening room. From Portugal, Vitalina Varela, and Ben is going to tell us about this one. Uh, this one is... Italina Varela, as Todd mentioned, from director Pedro Costa. If that name is familiar to you, you may know his previous work of Horse Money, Colossal Youth, and other films. Um, an auteur of some note, and this one is his latest, uh, where he's continuing his chronicling of the impoverished neighborhood in Lisbon of Fontanias. Um, this is where he filmed a, a previous trilogy Osos in Vanda's Room and Colossal Youth, um, starting in the late 90s through the mid 2000s. Um, and this is also where he met the subject of the film, Vitalina Varela, who's not only shares the title character name, but shares her own name and her own story for this film. Um, so he met her while filming, uh, looking for locations for horse money, um, and met her in her home ended up using her home for a location for that film and used her as an actor. That was just one scene. It was a, a scene stealer sort of a thing where she's describing her, her own grief at the loss of her husband. And it took a little bit of convincing on the part of his star of Horse Money, Ventura, 
who also plays a role in this film, Vitalina Varela, to get her to open up. Um, but after that, she she really took to it, and um, Pedro Costa was determined to to make this film that is sort of a a fleshing out of that story she tells in Horse Money. So in this film, uh, Vitalina is coming back from Cape Verde, and she's been gone for 25 years. She's coming back to her husband who left for work and has been living in uh, this neighborhood in Lisbon. But when she arrives, she's three days too late and he's, uh, he's died before he, she could reach him. Um, she gets there and is, is really of course grief stricken and um, just kind of wandering around, settling everything, settling his, his affairs. And the people there are even telling her to just kind of go home. She doesn't belong here. He's had other wives or other women. And um, so she's kind of despondent, but um, meets up with a priest uh, in the town played by Ventura, who has a, a great performance in it and just is processing her grief throughout the film. And the whole film is kind of processing the town's people's grief, the city's grief. Um, and they're, they're a little bit of a sleepwalking community um, dealing with their own historical grief as well as their um, literal losses in their, in their life. Um, and she is such a presence in the film. Like she's in every single frame and you can't take your eyes off of her. She deservedly won the best actress award in Locarno and is also given a co-writing credit on the film. Um, since this is her story and it really, it shows in, in the performance and in, in the story itself. Um, the film also won the top prize at Locarno. So it was, it was very well received there as it should be uh, really a painterly film. One of my favorites of the year. And uh, I hope everyone gets a chance to stream this one. Yeah, Ben, um, this film just at a, on a visual, visual level, uh, it really is all, one painterly composition after another. Um, so much of it, almost all of it, as I recall, is takes place at night. So you have uh, the, these pools of darkness that are interrupted by whatever you know, a, a limited light source from the either inside or outside the various uh, shacks of the shanty town. So it really has a chiaroscuro uh, aspect to it, but it's it's not only the way it looks, it, there's also a feel to it from the, the, the long takes with the, um, with the cast and the very deliberative pacing. That's true. It's um, the, the feel is kind of everything together. The long takes, the, the lighting, the at night um, sort of, uh, as you mentioned, the chiaroscuro it's, it's, all, it's very beautiful and something that is very deliberate in its pacing and, what has been deemed uh, in some circles as slow cinema, um, possibly one of my favorite genres of film. Um, it, it really does work on so many levels. And if you stream it, I hope you do that stuff being set at night, the shots being a little bit darker, highly suggest you watch this one with the lights off. I still need to catch up with this one, but I can tell just from the production stills and the trailer um, that yeah, how incredible and painterly the, the cinematography is, um, and hearing you two talk about it makes me want to watch it even more. And I think I will be watching it in the dark and maybe with some tissues, actually. <laughs> Not a bad idea. <laughs> okay. So 
from Pedro Costa, Vitalina Varela. That's coming to us from our friends at Grasshopper Film. Okay, so those are the five new films that we have available for viewing at home through AFI Silver's virtual screening room. And also continuing to be available there, uh, among others, are The Booksellers, which is, has been one of our most popular titles over the last, uh, last week or so. Uh, this, of course, is D.W. Young's look at the people who are involved in the antiquarian and rare books world, mainly in New York City. And that's alongside two other documentaries that are set in, in New York. The Times of Bill Cunningham, which is a profile of the legendary New York Times fashion and street photographer. And also the wonderful documentary Other Music about the beloved uh, New York City record store of the same name. Also continuing this week, uh, we have Driveways from Film Rise. And that's the latest from filmmaker Andrew Ahn, starring Golden Globe nominee Hong Chow and the late, great Brian Dennehy. Also continuing this week, which I'm very happy about, is the recently rediscovered 1981 big cat cult classic, Raw, from Drafthouse Films, starring Tippi Hedren and Melanie Griffith. And I'll also mention that although domesticated cats can't roll, we have the best of cat video fest still going in our virtual screening room. And I think these two would make a great double feature. Also still screening in our virtual screening room is a white, white day, the Icelandic thriller that has been a hit in our virtual screening room. And we're very happy to see it doing well. All of these titles plus many more can be found on our website, afi.com silver. And when you stream from our website, those links can also be found in our email communications and social media posts. This ensures that a portion of the streaming proceeds goes to support AFI Silver Theater. A sincere thank you to all of you who are able to support us this way during the theater's closure. So in addition to the titles we have available to stream right now through our virtual screening room, we also want to mention a few other titles out there as recommendations for things you may choose to enjoy watching at home. There's so much out there on the various streaming platforms, literally hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from. And we offer these up as our programmers picks, our recommendations for this week. So first up with his recommendation for this week is Ben. Right. This week I have a deep cut. It's Peppermint Frappe currently on the Criterion channel. This one is from director Carlos Saura, starring Geraldine Chaplin. It's a psychological thriller from 1967. This is their first collaboration. Uh, They would go on to do eight films total, including Sauda's most well-known film, Cria Cuervos, and also to be romantically involved during the time of all the filming of those films. So uh, not only was she his, his muse throughout much of the 60s and 70s, but they also ended up having a child together during that time. So just to get into the plot of the film a little bit, uh, this one has Julian is a conservative doctor living in a small town in Spain, and he gets a visit from his childhood friend Pablo for the first time in a long time. Pablo has been in Africa, and while in this long trip in Africa, he meets Elena, uh, a young blonde woman who he springs on uh, Julian for the first time, um, and Julian immediately falls for her. Just kind of head over heels and recall seeing her uh, playing the drum during a Holy Week festival in Kalanda. It just flashes back to to seeing pictures of her doing the exact drumming in 
this festival and he just can't get her out of his head. But uh, the newlyweds, as they return from Africa and meet Julian, are really trying hard to get him out of his shell. He's, you know, very conservative, buttoned up guy. And he, instead of getting out of his shell, kind of just continues to hit on and try to pick up Elena um, and keeps getting rebuffed after he's rebuffed several times and just doesn't get the, the deal. He, he decides kind of deviously that he's going to court his assistant, Anna, um, and turn her into Elena. Um, now the, the twist here being that Geraldine, Geraldine Chaplin plays both Elena and Anna two very different um, characters. And so they're obviously lookalike, but there's the film takes pains to kind of distinguish the two as different characters, both in their obviously hair color and the way they portray themselves. And so it's a really uh, an amazing performance here from Geraldine playing two different people um, in this one film. Uh, And the film kind of gets ratcheted up from there once he starts to influence his, uh, his young assistant. Um, besides being a psychological thriller, though, the, the film kind of fits into the camp of the allegorical films of the Franco era. Um, films like Spirit of the Beehive that would come just a few years later, and even more contemporary, Pan's Labyrinth is also one of these films. Um, so you can imagine that it has to kind of dance around these these topics as this would have been contemporary to uh, Franco still being in power, but it's it definitely a factor in, in the film, a very curious early work from Carlos Sauda. So Ben, this film would be an entrant in the rather fun subgenre of double role films. And I'm, I'm curious, uh, within the subgenre, there are subgenres. So some movies have evil twin roles. Some movies have secret identities and, and or transformative monsters like Jekyll and Hyde. Where does this one land? Are, are we supposed to believe that these are different characters or do, are we su- supposed to suspect that they're actually one and the same? Yeah, so that's interesting. It is, it's a really fun rabbit hole to dive down in terms of the, the dual roles, the, the evil twins, as you mentioned, obviously Dead Ringers comes to mind. Um, but in this case, there's, there's not a specific instance of even mentioning that they look alike. Um, that doesn't come up, but it's kind of in a way harkens to Hitchcock's vertigo a lot where you're not sure if they're two different characters or you're not sure if the, if the protagonist of Julian himself believes him to be the same person There's kind of that back and forth in his head. And so there's, there's a little bit of mystery in that regard, but not only is it, is it an homage to vertigo, it's also uh, explicitly dedicated to Luis Buñuel. So at the end of the film, uh, before the end pops up, you see a dedication to Luis Buñuel. And it's, it's very fitting, uh, as you see a lot of Buñuelian touches throughout the film. And Ben, where does the title come from? Because I love the title. And I love the poster, by the way. Oh, yeah, it's an amazing, amazing poster. It's a good title, and it comes from a couple of different places. There's, there's two different explicit meanings for the title. Um, one is that it's Julian's favorite drink. Um, it's kind of a creme de menthe uh, sort of a thing. It might actually be that exact same thing. Um, so it's a drink that features prominently throughout the film when they're gathered together. That's the drink they always drink. Um, and not only is it a drink, it's a song. So it's also the title of a song by Los Canarios, a band from the Canary Islands of the 60s, kind of a power 
another power pop group, a pop group from the 60s. Um, and the song was The Incredible Miss Perryman in parentheses, Peppermint Frappe. Uh, it's a really catchy tune and it comes up a couple times in key scenes in the movie. All right. So Ben recommends Peppermint Frappe from 1967, and that is available to view on the Criterion channel. Next up, Abby, what do you recommend for viewing at home this week? Well, Ben, I have to say that my pick this week makes your deep cut peppermint frappe look like a flesh wound. So get ready. So you might have noticed that I have the taste for the cinematically odd deer skin, raw, some recent examples. Um, And so I couldn't resist it when I came across this British Film Institute article a couple of weeks ago about this 1968 BBC television play called The Year of the Sex Olympics, starring, among others, Brian Cox, of course, most recently known for the HBO series Succession. So I watched it. It turns out that this film isn't really about sex. It's not really about the Olympics, but that didn't matter because this film is one crazy piece of prophetic TV drama. Um, It was discovered, I think, in the 1980s, rediscovered in the archives. Um, The British Film Institute have restored it and they're now putting it out on a new DVD. So I thought this would be a good time to check it out. So let me start by asking you to imagine a world in which the docile masses are kept in line by an endless supply of really painful to watch reality TV where your watch can be also your phone and where the world is constantly glued to screens 24-7 because somehow this is the world that the year of the Sex Olympics predicted in 1968. Um, It was the brainchild of a British screenwriter called Nigel Neal, maybe best known as the creator of this 50s sci-fi TV series called The Quartermass Experiment, which went on to have subsequent series and then a series of films as well. He was also a collaborator of the director Tony Richardson, and he wrote the screenplays for Look Back in Anger, and The Entertainer. So the film he imagines is set in an overpopulated future where following a failed revolution, there's been a new order established in which this small elite group of people, media moguls, keep the masses happy with cheap thrills provided by various TV programs through which they can live vicariously. So these are shows like the titular Sex Olympics, um, which is what it sounds like. And it's the culmination of this ongoing TV show called Sports Sex. And also shows like the Hungry Angry Show, in which people angrily throw food at each other for the audience's entertainment. And by the way, yes, Nigel Neal, precursor to Hangry in the Hungry Angry Show. Anyway, so throughout all of this, uh, the show's producers are monitoring the audience reactions and the ratings. And when the audiences start to lose enthusiasm for some of these programs, which would be a really bad thing in the year in which they're producing the Sex Olympics, by the way, because that's a big show. Um, The production coordinator, Ugo Priest, who is played by Leonard Rossiter, who uh, also in this 1968 had a role in 2001 A Space Odyssey. So his, his character has to think up 
new ways to keep the population entertained and keep the ratings up and keep them engaged and keep their minds off anything else. They try a number of things, mainly focused on making people laugh, but you know, none of it seems to work. And then they have a revelation because one of the disgruntled colleagues who works on, on one of these shows, I think he works on the art sex TV show. He essentially commits suicide live on air. And the audience reaction is momentous. People love it. And so the team realized that, okay, maybe there is another way to keep people glued to their screens. And so this ambitious young producer called Laser Opie, amazing name, played by Brian Cox, comes up with this idea for a program called The Live Life Show, in which they're going to take a family and relocate them to a far-flung seemingly unpopulated island where they'll have to survive unaided while being filmed and broadcast 24 hours a day. So they're just given like a small cottage, some food and some seeds, little audio manual that tells them how to plant seeds and grow food that will self-destruct after two weeks. And they're they're told that they just have to roll with it and see what happens. And, you know, Laser OP, he's kind of a TV genius and realizes that he starts... He needs to start adding surprises and elements of danger into the production to kind of spice things up because in his word, something has to happen. And uh, guess what? The show is a massive hit. So yeah, this film is kind of insane. Um, It basically predicted Big Brother, Survivor, Love Island, Naked and Afraid, a personal favorite. And I also heard today that... um, TBS has ordered a 20-episode revival of the game show Wipeout, which is essentially a reality show where the audience gets to laugh at people attempting to go along obstacle courses and falling and making fools of themselves in the process. So, you know, what the year of the Sex Olympics, I think, really predicted is the way in which most reality TV shows work on the the basis of schadenfreude. Um, which wasn't a concept that was new, of course, in 1968. But I think the idea of exploiting it and monetizing it and engaging it as some kind of form of social control was was something that Neil was really quite far ahead of the curve on. Uh, it's a very Orwellian vision of the future. Um, and by the way, Nigel Neil had adapted 1984 for television in the 50s and in the 60s. It's definitely a precursor to... Classics like Logan's Run and The Running Man, which, yes, I am calling a classic. But I also imagine that it had to have been some kind of influence on something like Sidney Lumet's network um, and even on Succession, where Brian Cox plays, yes, the ruthless head of a global media empire. So, you know, Nigel Neal worked for years in TV and it's clear he has an insider's perspective here. Um, He's taking a jab at television production. Um, You know, the voyeurism of of television, the passive nature of mass consumerism, he's taking a jab at all these things and in the process, predicting some really crazy stuff that actually has happened. And uh, Todd, I would like to know what Thomas Piketty has to say. (laughs) <laughs> the year of the Sex Olympics. I think if if Piketty watched this, uh, yeah, he would he would co-sign all of the predictions, and I think he would appreciate the uh, historicity of it all. Well, you you ticked off a number of of current reality shows that have an eerie similarity to things predicted by uh, the year of the Sex Olympics. At your urging, I I watched it recently myself, and just to 
get this out there now, uh, the first thing that it will bring to mind is, of course, the original early seasons of Doctor Who, um, including what the, the production budget is or isn't. It's, 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 there's no obscuring its uh, TV movie origins, but what you're coming to and what you're appreciating are the amazing ideas uh, on display here. Um, and this made me think of how this is an interesting area that uh, repertory cinema has barely touched upon, but there's some really fascinating things that were done in this time. Now, access is a, is a challenge, but uh, for example, a few years ago, we were able to show uh, a really great episode of Playhouse 90, which I think would be the kind of U.S. equivalent of the, the showcase that the year the Sex Olympics went out on in the U.K., which was called Theater 625. But the, the episode of Playhouse we showed was Alas Babylon, starring Don Murray. We were fortunate enough to have Don Murray there in person for that, that screening as well. There's some, there's some fascinating work that was done uh, for TV in this era. Certainly, and I think that Nigel Neal was kind of at the forefront of that with what, what he was doing with his television work. And, you know, yes, as you mentioned, this is... This is television. It's it's a filmed play, essentially. It was directed actually by veteran theatre director Michael Elliott, who was one of the founders of Manchester's Royal Exchange. Um, and he does a good job, but you know, it does have a very theatrical quality about it. And you know, yes, the production values might not be what you would expect from a regular theatrical feature of the era. But you know, yeah, I think you're right. It's what it lacks in these production values is it makes up for in just the crazily imaginative and prophetic storytelling. So Abby, you mentioned that they attempted a comedy in this dystopian future setting and, and all they can come up with for a comedy idea is a pie in the face show called the, uh, what's it called? The custard pie show. So um, it, it seems that among the things, the hardships that we might face in the dystopian future is a, is a loss of comedy. On the other hand, what people seem to enjoy laughing at is, uh, you know, very cruel things and, and even death. Yeah, that's true. Unfortunately, that that's true. I mean, it's a it's a harsh truth, but Nigel Neal was uh, was there predicting it. Um, I would even draw comparisons with something like Black Mirror in terms of the, the kind of prescient visions that he had <laughs> about where we are now. Um, you know, he, there were also other things in there that I found interesting. Like I mentioned the watch that doubles up as a phone, you know, people talk into their, into their watches, like it's like, it's a little iPhone. There's the way that the elite kind of entertain themselves with this form of virtual reality. No one can really go outside <laughs> and everything's automated in this world, which all changes, you know, when the people have to go and survive in, in the real world with, you know plants and animals and grass and other things. Yeah. On the, on the automation, they go past actually playing video games and they have something called auto chess where you watch the computer play itself at chess, which that sounds a little bit like logging on to watch other people play video games. I think that would be the point. Definitely. <laughs> so the way in which the, the cruelty is the point for so much of this programming also made me think of Mike Judge's Idiocracy. And of course, the uh, most popular television show in that uh, dystopian future. Do you remember what it was? I don't remember the name of it. <laughs> uh, I believe it was called Ow My Balls, which, which would also be exactly what the show is. Nigel Neal and Mike Judge, two peas in a pod. Definitely. 
All right. So from Abby, this week's recommendation, an amazing mind-blowing curio from 1968, the year of the Sex Olympics. And my recommendation for this week takes us back to 1936 with My Man Godfrey, a classic screwball comedy with crucially a Great Depression setting. The film stars William Powell and Carol Lombard and is directed by Gregory LaCava. And first, some information about him. His career started way back in the teens with silent comedy, dozens of comedy shorts. He later worked with W.C. Fields on two features. It's not clear that they enjoyed a great working relationship, but then again, it's not clear that Fields enjoyed that with any one of his collaborators necessarily. But where LaCava really seemed to excel was guiding star actresses to great comedic performances. In addition to Lombard here, he also directed B.B. Daniels in an outstanding silent comedy from 1928 called Feel My Pulse. He directed Claudette Colbert in Private Worlds in 1935, for which she was Oscar nominated, as well as She Married Her Boss. And LaCava would go on to direct Ginger Rogers in Stage Door in 1937, opposite, of course, Catherine Hepburn and Fifth Avenue Girl in 39, whose plot greatly resembles the one in Godfrey. And continuing on, he directed Irene Dunn in two 40s comedies, Unfinished Business and Lady in a Jam. Top build here is Powell. And to take things back to 1936, Powell was riding high, first with the Philo Vance detective films in the early 30s. But in 1934, he starred in his first The Thin Man movie, opposite Myrna Loy, which of course would kick off a long-running and beloved franchise with six films total being made over the next dozen or so years. Lombard, at this point in time, had had some ups and downs. He was greatly in demand as a star, but variable in terms of how well the films had succeeded. When we think back now to what are Carol Lombard's best films, we think of films like 20th Century from 1934, Nothing Sacred from 1937, to Be or Not to Be from 1941, and of course, Godfrey from 36. All of these are outstanding screwball comedies, but Lombard made many more melodramas and romance films along with her comedies. It's interesting to think, looking back, that these are the ones that survive today as her best work. The screenplay is by Maury Riskin, who wrote several Marx Brothers screenplays, including A Night at the Opera and Animal Crackers. He also wrote Stage Door for Lacava. And the co-writer on the screenplay is Eric Hatch, who had written the source novel. Hatch would go on to have his other big success as a screenwriter the following year, 1937, with Topper. So getting back to Godfrey and the way the film opens, it opens with one of the most dazzling, uh, dazzlingly visual credit sequences you're apt to find. An illustrated cityscape of the New York City buildings at night with the names and lights spelling out the film's credited cast and crew. And I urge you to check out the wonderful website, Art of the Title, to see this uh, excerpt of just the opening, opening minute of, of My Man Godfrey to see what title design can be done in the most artistic way and, and fun sort of way. The view tracks along from the names and lights of the credits to the base of the Brooklyn Bridge, where it fades into the opening scene. An establishing shot of the Hoover town of Shacks along the, the banks of the river, of the East River, inhabited by William Powell and the other forgotten men of the era. Now, that was a phrase at the time 
which would have a lot of currency, having only recently been made famous in a speech by FDR in 1932. And this opening scene establishes a, a bewhiskered Powell, very different than how we often think of him, known as Duke, at least in this community. He seems to be a well-liked resident of the shantytown, shooting the breeze on this autumn night with his fellow tramps, all of them gamely discussing what job prospects they did not succeed in getting today or whether or not they ate uh, a meal, and sarcastically joking about how prosperity is right around the corner. Of course, another phrase that would have a lot of currency in that, in that era from former President Herbert Hoover. Powell and the other tramps measure of peace is then disturbed when a car pulls up and a group of well-dressed New York City socialites tumbles out, including the Bullock sisters, Irene, played by Lombard, Cornelia, her older sister with a mean streak, played by Gail Patrick, who kind of specialize in these kind of antagonist roles, often as a romantic rival or other woman. And they are searching to recruit a forgotten man as an item on their charity ball scavenger hunt that night. Powell, as Duke, turns Cornelia and her offer of $5 down flat. But after literally bumping into her sister, the more thoughtful Irene, decides to help the little sister out against the imperious older sister and accompanies her back to where the ball's being held. Once there, Duke also takes this opportunity to address the society crowd gathered there as a bunch of nitwits. What's a nitwit? The Bullock Girl's mother, Angelica, then asks with perfect comedic timing, as played by Alice Brady, the first of many ditzy and delightful lines delivered by this great actress. A veteran of silent film in the teens and Broadway stage through the 20s, she would go on to win a Best Supporting Actress Oscar the following year for 1937's In Old Chicago, directed by Henry King, where she plays Molly O'Leary, whose cow is, of course, involved in the fire that consumes Chicago. And there will be many opportunities for lines like Brady's to come after Irene informs the family that she has hired Duke, real name Godfrey, to be their house's new butler. Now ensconced in the family's Art Deco Fantasia of a Manhattan apartment, Godfrey ingratiates himself to Angelica and Father Alexander, played by the foghorn voiced and fireplug built Eugene Pellet, Harry's with the devious Cornelia, plays straight man to the family's wisecracking maid Molly, played by Jean Dixon who gives the very epitome of a funny maid performance, and largely steers clear of Angelica's lounge lizard musician protege, Carlo, played by Misha Auer. And, despite trying to keep things strictly professional, becomes the object of Irene's affection. Powell and Lombard have a pleasing chemistry together here, largely consisting of Lombard mooning over him to comic effect and Powell playing hard to get. Depending on how you view it, this is or isn't a surprise in light of the fact that the pair were formally married in real life from 1931 to 1933. But even as divorcees, they enjoyed a friendly relationship and actually top Bill Powell advocated to hire Lombard for the role for which he thought she would be outstanding. He was right. Powell by this point was attached to Jean Harlow, while Lombard would soon take up with and eventually marry Clark Gable. Eventually, there's a twist regarding Godfrey's mysterious background, which, again, either is or isn't a surprise, depending on how many Hollywood films you've seen at this point, before the film moves on from the Bullock's household and on to its next adventure. The film was nominated for six Oscars, including Best Director for La Cava, Best Screenplay for Riskin and Hatch, and acting nominations for Powell, Lombard, Alice Brady, and Misha Auer. Long in the public domain, like His Girl Friday, which I discussed a few weeks back, 
The film exists on a number of shabby looking DVDs, which should be avoided at all costs. Seek out the Criterion DVD if you can, which includes some nifty extras as well. My Man Godfrey is a comedic charmer with just a touch of topicality, both for then and now. And I recommend it as a great film to watch this week. Uh, yeah, it sounds like the perfect film to watch for right now. And a, kind of a different role for William Powell from what he was maybe known as, as at the time, having already done The Thin Man and established that persona. Seems like a little bit of a, a different one for him. Yeah, maybe a little bit. It, the, the film kind of has it both ways uh, with his, his bum persona in the early going um, and then his employment uh, as a servant. But uh, as, a, as I mentioned, there's a, a little bit of a twist coming up. So you, you both get a, a non-traditional Powell casting from what we think of as his 30s and 40s persona and uh, also one that's uh, very much in sync with that. Great. And also Carol Lombard's performance, um, maybe one of her, her best or world, most well-regarded comedic performances, but she really does have a range not only through different comedies, but uh, also different kinds of films in her sadly cut short career. Yeah, of course, Lombard tragically died uh, way, way, way too young in a horrific plane crash when she was out on a war bonds promotional tour. The comedies, the great comedies that we have as her, her legacy, um, the performances are different from, from one to the other. Uh, for many, this is considered her greatest comedic performance. For my money, I, I kind of prefer 20th Century. I, I like that she's got a little more edge uh, to her character there. But even though uh, her role here as Irene seems sweet and retiring and naive and maybe a bit ditzy, there is, as the story goes along, uh, some steel underneath that as well that's, that's eventually revealed. When one last thing I kind of wanted to, to ask you about was this film was pretty close to um, the enacting of the Hayes Code. Is there any sort of skirting around that or covering it up to, to really notice throughout the film? Or is it really something else completely? It seems like it could be something that's a part of the film. Well, 1936 is well into the establishment of enforcement of the Hayes Code. So all of the, the naughty, uh, saucy, unapologetic enjoyment of vice stuff that we associate with early 30s films is kept out. But it is something that typifies where comedy evolved uh, in, in that end of the decade with the fast talking and the sort of uh, pixelated characters and everything that we think of as screwball comedy. It's not taking anything away from the film to say that it doesn't have much in the, in the, in the sex category, uh, but there's plenty of inventive uh, one-liners and back and forth fast talk. And the romance, the budding romance between Powell and Lombard is, is really wonderful to, to see play out. Well, I read this really great article, actually, Todd, this week in the New York Times by Manila Dargis about the escapism, the wonderful escapism of 1930s musicals. And I wondered, like, how closely related is the screwball comedies of the 30s to the musicals? And, you know, how do they relate in terms of them both coming from the Depression era? And did they serve kind of similar purposes? Uh, absolutely. Uh, these films, uh, both uh, the non-musical My Man Godfrey and, and the various musicals talked about in, in Manola Dargis's article, 
uh, would be very at home together in sort of a depression comedy retrospective. And another thing they share is the love of art deco design. Uh, we can think of 42nd Street and uh, Gold Diggers of 1933, some of the stage sets and Busby Berkeley choreography that we get in those films. I mentioned earlier the, uh, the apartment set for Godfrey, but there's also at the end uh, a nightclub where the, uh, the Forgotten Men's uh, Hoover Town is transformed into New York's newest, hottest nightclub, The Dump. Located at The Dump. I almost did the, <laughs> the Stefan plug for uh, New York's hottest new nightclub. So yeah, so My Man Godfrey and the, the great musicals uh, of the 30s and, and their shared depression settings uh, go together perfectly, but I'll, I'll throw you one better with an unexpected connection uh, with Gold Diggers of 1933 popping up in the documentary that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, Capital in the 21st Century, with uh, both an extended film clip and, and song played out over uh, uh, that segment. Basically, we need to do a podcast with Thomas Piketty, is what you're saying. Uh, yeah. We're ready if he's ready. Let me just call him. Hold on. Uh, I know where he'll be Sunday at three. <laughs> okay, so that wraps it up for this week's edition of Silver Streams. Thank you all for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy. We hope you see something you love this week, and we hope you'll tune in for the next episode. Thanks for joining us again and hope to see you again next week where I will talk about maybe not a crazy film like the year of the sex Olympics. We'll see. Or maybe you will. We will see. Thank you everyone again for tuning in. If you haven't already done it, go over to our uh, podcast page, either on the anchor.fm website itself or the place where you listen on your app and just give us a rating, give us a quick rating and a positive review. Five stars, please. Um, that really helps us get in front of new people who may not otherwise hear about the podcast. A reminder to our listeners, you can find everything we are currently streaming at AFI.com slash silver. And a portion of the proceeds from streaming these titles goes to support AFI Silver Theater. When you're on our website, please be sure to sign up for our email in order to keep up with our latest announcements. And if you have any feedback or questions, you can always email us at silverinfo at AFI.com. You can also get in touch with us or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at AFI Silver Theatre and on Twitter at AFI Silver. And if you have streaming suggestions you'd like us to think about, please tag us with your picks. This week's episode's music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Find more of their work at sessions.blue.